All right, Mike, so you've seen these Dolly images floating around Twitter, right? Yeah, one of the ones that stands out, I remember it's like Leonardo enters the metaverse, which is an image that looks like an old Leonardo da Vinci painting of one of our ancestors, but wearing a <laughs> VR headset going into the metaverse. If you haven't seen it, listeners, definitely worth the Google search. Ah, yes, I have seen that one. Definitely worth the Google. Well, there's a lot more product news and advancements actually coming out of the AI space. So I wanted to dig into that a bit today. And then... What, that's not enough for you? (laughs) Well, no, no, no. We also have an interview with David Cancel from an industry fireside chat, which I'm incredibly excited to share. And that'll be at the end of the show. We'll bring that in. Yeah, yeah, it was actually at this past edition of Industry, the product conference. I sat down with David, of course, one of the co-founders of Drift, a very, very successful software as a service company. And it was a lot of fun. And yeah, I think our listeners would would love checking that out. Absolutely, so it's gonna be a good one. It's gonna be packed. And it all begins after we roll the intro. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. And first, a quick word from our sponsors. As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. 
We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us, go to gigantic.is, that's gigantic.is, and save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Okay, so AI is moving incredibly fast these days, and it's going to touch all aspects of the product world. Yeah, one of the most, let's say, visible examples that has really taken over the internet as of late is Dolly. Now, Dolly and Dolly 2, they're machine learning models developed by OpenAI to generate digital images from natural language descriptions called prompts. How does it work, right? For that, we're actually going to turn to Trevor Noah. Wait, from like the Daily Show? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll turn to Trevor Noah and his interview with Mira Murati, the Chief Technology Officer at OpenAI. Mira Murati, welcome to the Daily Show. Thank you for having me. Um, so, many people have seen the images that Dali creates. Many people may even think they understand it. But, but let's let's get into it. Like, how does an AI? create an image because it's not copying the image it, it it's not right, you know yeah. taking from something else it is creating an image from nothing how is it doing this exactly it's it's an original image never seen before and um you know we have been making images since the beginning of time and we simply took a great deal of these images and we fed them into this ai system um, and it learned this relationship between the description of the image and the image itself right um, it learned these patterns and um, eventually it was generating images that were original they were not copies of what it had seen before right. um, and basically the way that it learns the, the magic is just understanding the patterns and analyzing the patterns between a lot of information um, a lot of training data that uh -huh, we uh -huh. have fed into the system and these images are so good I mean some of them have actually won art competitions. Can't say we've ever covered the State Fair's art competition, but this is the first year it has been won by our robot overlords. The winning piece was created by artificial intelligence. Actual artists who got beat out are not happy. That's a clip from Next9 News, and they went on to interview the quote-unquote artist who submitted the piece. I put... Uh... AI, an AI-generated art piece into the contest in the digital art category, and I won first place. Jason Allen had never entered an art competition before, and he's gotten some flack. They're saying, I didn't make it. You cheated. You're not an artist. I disagree. The AI is a tool, like a paintbrush is a tool, and there is a creative force and a mind behind it. But AI arguably did most of the work. Did the person who won the award create the program? Should the person who did create the program have credit in the award? It's an interesting issue that's gonna keep coming up. In fact, the exact question of who owns a computer-generated image, it's gonna be a hot legal topic until we see some 
like really conclusive legislation. Yeah, see, each AI image generator, it actually needs to be trained on a data set of images, but oftentimes companies are training on data sets and they don't actually own the IP for those. Right, but it's difficult to know which images have and haven't been used when training an algorithm. But when you say win an art competition, should a piece of ownership go to each of the people whose work was used to train the algorithm? Similar to how musicians are compensated when the work is sampled? Yet nothing concrete will happen until there are regulations created that require this kind of reporting if a company was, say, audited. But we're so far off from this type of legislation. Honestly, I think it's just going to feel like the Wild West for some time. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, there are companies that have access to a ton of data that they may be able to legally train these algorithms on. Google, for instance, it built its language model by a training system on several gigabytes of text. As far back as 2018, Google's Ajit Varma told the Wall Street Journal that its smart reply feature had been trained on billions of Gmail messages. So there you go. All of these emails that we've been sending back and forth, they're now going to help write the future of humanity. Yeah, we're, we're pretty much screwed, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably so. <laughs> and text and images, it's just the beginning. Now listen to this. That's not bad, right? No, not bad at all. Well, that was AI music generated by Ava Technologies. No humans were even bothered in the creation of it. That is crazy. That is crazy. Now, speaking of audio-generated AI, Michael, I'm sure you've heard the Joe Rogan, Steve Jobs interview. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I have, actually. I've heard of it. I don't know if I've actually heard the clips, though. Okay, I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy, right? I mean, Steve Jobs... Obviously, died a long time ago. Joe Rogan has his current podcast, but it's wild. I mean, 20 minutes, completely AI-generated interview, the voices and everything. And, well, here's what it sounds like right here. So you studied at Reed College. Tell me about your time there. What did you learn? And you dabbled in Eastern mysticism there, right? Do you still go back and look at Hinduism and Buddhist texts and things? Not texts and things. I actually took a course in that. I have a very deep belief that the people in the Indian subcontinent are most responsible for human civilization's current state, whether it's math or spirituality or the art of storytelling. Western civilization is based on the art of storytelling. There's a great Indian epic that's 10 times as long as the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. Those things all came from the subcontinent and they're simply the foundation of what's made our society what it is. I view that stuff as much more important than, you know, philosophy as it is classically understood. Wow, that is, well, strange. Yes. And here is AI Steve Jobs and his prediction on the future. You have computers that are as smart as people, but much more reliable. They won't get tired. They won't get sick. They won't go on vacation and leave work unfinished. You tell them to do something, they'll just do it. And they will have many more orders of intelligence than people have. The computer will be a thousand times more important than it is today. We're right on the edge of that. So what do we want to do about it? Do we want to just ride the wave or do something else? It kind of scares me, to be honest. It should scare you. But it is also really cool. That's the best way I can describe it. It's really, really cool. That's the good news and the bad news. It's both. Yeah. 
That's how most of life is, though. If it was just awesome, it wouldn't be balanced by something else. But you know what I think about this new world? I think there are a lot of people who are already out of work or who will soon be out of work. It's just not the solution for everyone in the world. Things that are centralizing, like the automobile and the telephone, are sometimes great. But if things concentrate power in a new way, such that there is no longer any checks and balances, well, that is scary. But you have to be honest about it. Are those good things for the human race? In general, I would say yes. But it is also a very scary thing. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to bring it up, but the biggest thing on my mind is the guy who could make this thing into a weapon and how somebody could just manufacture these things and sell them to grade schools and whatever, and they would be out of control in a way that we couldn't deal with. I've got three daughters that are young, and I'm thinking about how to prepare them for this future world you're talking about. You need to make sure they know that they should never trust a computer. They can't throw out a window. It would be good to teach them how to do that. I want them to be able to throw out a Mac. Oh yeah, no doubt. This is not an anime statement. I use a Mac, but I can throw it out the window. I do too. I throw my computer out the window every few years just to make sure it works. <laughs> I'm not even sure what I just listened to. The ending is great. We probably should have just played that clip, but I throw out my computer every few years to still ensure it works. Brilliant advice from AI Steve Jobs. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, let's take a quick break. So before the break, we discovered that we probably won't be needed to host the show in the near future. <laughs> That's right. AI Sokka, AI Belsito. They could probably handle it from here on out. In fact, OpenAI just led the financing of Descript at $500 million plus valuation to help this very thing happen. Yeah, Descript is an audio and video editing application founded five years ago by Groupon co-founder Andrew Mason. And it uses AI for some features. Yeah, originally it simply transcribed like audio and allowed you to edit it. But now when people edit a transcript, including adding or changing words, Descript can create a new audio that sounds as if the person recording it had actually voiced those changes. That's so cool. Right? <laughs> okay, so here's an example of that feature from one of their help videos. I've already set up overdub for my Descript account, which is a way that you can type text and have it generate audio in your own voice. It's incredibly handy for situations like this where I want to make an editorial correction. So first, let's listen to the original. Pointers and Norelco must have missed the memo. And you'll notice it sounds like I said in, so I'm just going to correct that too. So to make a correction, I just type here. And now I click overdub and submit. All right, let's give that a listen. But the pencil pointers at Phillips must have missed the memo because, and that's all there is to it. Okay. Yeah. We definitely are in trouble. Uh, <laughs> but how about this one, Michael? Did you see this news about Shutterstock integrating Dolly images into its photo platform? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. And wow, that was kind of surprising and, and soon. Yeah. So now photography, that is also dead as we know it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, first will come the lawsuits. So it still might have some life left in it. Here's actually Jason Kalkanis and Molly Wood discussing the integration on This Week in Startups. Shutterstock CEO released a statement saying, quote, the mediums to express creativity are constantly evolving and expanding. We recognize that it is our great responsibility to embrace this evolution and to ensure that the generative technology that drives innovation 
is grounded in ethical practices. Now, artists, I made that kind of snotty comment about were they using our class photos, because that's what we all had to use for uploading photos. But artists have complained that Shutterstock did use their work to train this AI image generator and then now are going to profit off of selling those images as stock art. Uh, Shutterstock's going to lose this lawsuit, I predict. Uh, oh, you think I there's going to be a lawsuit? There is 100% going to be many lawsuits on this. And here's hmm. why. The use of uh, somebody's original work to make derivative works, there is mm -hmm. a long history of this. And so let's go through some examples here. If I were to give you the entire corpus of Marvel Comics, every single Marvel comic ever made, and Marvel had built a delicate licensing arrangement with the people who created them. Now, in some cases, they were what's called work for hire. You got a salary, you came to work every day, whatever you built, like most companies, uh, in fact, the people who work at OpenAI, people who work at Google, any major company, you work for hire. Your work at, uh, at Marketplace or uh, New York Times, you were paid, they own it. Yep. You can't take it with you. Now, okay, great. But in these instances, artists typically have rights and those rights are very detailed and they're very granular. And so in the case of people who created different characters, they might have licensing deals for those characters. Or in the case of I made, you know, E.T., the extraterrestrial, uh, I wrote the screenplay. You know, there's all these mechanical licenses and derivative product licenses. Famously, Star Wars, you know, uh, he Lucas kept the rights to make uh, the uh, figurines and the toys, right? Uh, you know, and the sequels. Mm -hmm. So th 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 these are very granular, complex. Specific, yeah. And so now, in the case of uh, Shutterstock, I'm guessing that they buy the rights to resell these images, and the same with Getty. These were not work for hire. Now, they might have a selection of them where they own all the rights explicitly. There might be some on the web that are what they call Creative Commons. If you don't know Creative Commons, it's a licensing. I know you know it, Molly, but for the audience, you can look it up. Yep. Some yep. people will let people create derivative works as long as they're not commercial, but this is clearly commercial. Mm -hmm. So let's say in the Marvel instance, I said, okay, now make me a character who's similar to Wolverine, but is a female and is in, an, in the Frank Miller style of Batman, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. now we've got this Dark Knight-ish female version of Wolverine. Hey, your mind can imagine that, and obviously AI is going to do it instantly. There is no world or situation in which no a, a, a jury uh, or the legal system would say that's fair. So there you have it. Jason Calacanis believes the training data will be subject to lawsuits, and companies who have trained these algorithms and then sold images based on those trainings will probably have to pay up. So careful out there, folks. It's all fun and games until the lawyers show up. But seriously, I bet these training data sets will become incredibly valuable. I would bet there's probably an entire market peddling the right to use various data training sets that will emerge in the near future. Yeah, instead of licensing their work to be consumed by end users, photographers, musicians, artists, maybe they find a new revenue stream to include in the licensing of the training data sets. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I hope they're able to share in the profits from these images. However, I don't know, it might not be much, right? So like each image, they seem to sell around like 10 cents on these AI-generated platforms. And there's millions and millions of photos and graphics that are used to train these models. So I don't know, the proceeds, they could be underwhelming. All right, let's take a quick break here and we'll be back with our interview with David Cancel, co-founder of Drift. Okay, we're back. 
And we have a fantastic interview with David Cancel, the co-founder of Drift, from an industry fireside chat. Yes, this is coming right from Industry, the product conference in Cleveland, Ohio, just a couple of months back. And, well, we're going to play you a portion of that interview right here. I think you're going to like it. Good morning, David. Welcome to Industry. Uh, thanks for having me. That's the first time I, I usually walk out to Jay-Z. <laughs> no, we should have asked. Like, what Jay, so what Jay-Z song would you normally walk out to? Or does Run the city. All right. I love it. <laughs> uh, well, welcome to Cleveland, by the way. Is this your first time? First time. Or? Okay. First time. It's amazing. All right. Great. Well, we're glad that you're here. Um, you know, we're having a conversation with you on what customers expect of business software and, and how that's changed over the years and maybe how it will continue to change. Um, but before we get into that specifically, I'm curious, you know, you helped co-found the team at Drift mm -hmm. and it's been an incredibly successful company these last was it eight years or so since yeah, the company was founded. founded. Mm -hmm. um, what led you to launching Drift in the first place? Well, we were, that's a great question, the, like the inception story. Uh, we had um, just left a company called HubSpot. I was chief product officer at HubSpot. We had gone public, and I was thinking of uh, not starting another company deliberately. And my co-founder, who was my VP of engineering at um, HubSpot, definitely wanted to start another company. And so uh, he kept trying to get me to, to think about starting another company. I said, I don't want to start another company unless, you know, we can do something massive. We see a big trend or set of trends happening in the market and, and that we can get excited about and that we can do for a long time because personally, that was, I, my last company was my fourth company. Drift is my fifth company I started. And you know, my journey as a product person went from a world of like being an idea, you know, being an idea person or having an idea which then I wanted to build a product or build a company around to not caring about ideas anymore and thinking about only about changes in the world, behavior changes, market trends, and like getting excited about that. And then building a product to kind of address the, the need in the market. And then I got excited about looking at a couple of mega trends that we saw. One of them was that messaging was changing the way that we were living our lives, you know, everything from uh, Slack to like text messages to whatever and then also that we were moving from a world where the power at least in B2B and in corporate software was moving from the company having all the power to like it moving towards the buyer and so that things would have to be reimagined. So yeah. then we started a company. Yeah. yeah. No, I love that. And, and you, you mentioned kind of a couple of those trends from back then. Yeah. Um, how, I guess, when you started that, were those things already in full force or was it more like, okay, I think these things are coming these next couple of years and we kind of had to um, almost make big assumptions that that was going to happen? Yeah, I, both. I'd say, you know, one of the things, um, if you know uh, Mary Meeker, Mary Meeker, used to post these slides every year about internet trends, you know, once a year. Everyone should look at them if they're interested in trends that are happening. And one of them that we were, I was looking at the time was around messaging uh, adoption, right? And so, like, there was nothing new from a technology standpoint in messaging, right? Like, there was IRC, there was some form of chat, like, my entire career. But, like, the, the, what was different was the market size was very small, right? It was just a bunch of us geeks, you know, using messaging to a world where, like, when we were starting Drift in 2015, everyone from, like, our grandmothers to our kids to whatever were using messaging and preferring it. We saw that happening in her, and at a global level, you know, in her kind of market trend slides, but it yet had not been adopted in the business world. So, like, that was the assumption part. But, like, the trend was undeniable, but it had not been applied to our world yet. Yeah. You mentioned something also before about when you were starting Drift, 
that business software, whereas before it might have been more of a top-down kind of decision. You're seeing some power go to the buyers. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that, maybe sure. where that was back then and, and how that played into Drift growing as well? Yeah, well, I think the advantage I had was, at the time, was that I've been doing this for so long, like a million years, especially internet years. And so, you know, uh, so, you know, I, I grew up in a world when I wrote code and built products that, you know, there was only, there were very few people within an enterprise who could buy software. Back then it was usually the procurement department. You would have to go through procurement and it was a very complicated process to be accepted into a company to sell software or services or hardware or anything like that. And then over time, what we kept seeing happening was that that was expanding. First, that power went from only procurement to the CIO, then went CIO, CMO, then CMO, CRO, every C-level. And then when we were starting Drift, we were, I believe that we were in a world where like, um, like everyone in the company was buying something because of SaaS. Like maybe it was a service, maybe it was going to a conference like that. Like they were making purchasing decisions where like when I started my career, purchasing was centralized and professional. And the reason that that mattered that everyone was making these purchasing decisions was that they were non-professional buyers, right? Procurement's a professional buyer, they'll make you jump through hurdles, they have certain expectations. You and I in our personal lives are not professional buyers, we buy, you know, that the way that we buy based on emotion and based on kind of affinity and things like that. And so like that shift was happening, but like software and enterprise software had not shifted to that reality. I'm curious, one of the things we talked about before was, you know, how things have changed, where they are now. Um, what about the next 10 years? You know, if you were to, it's impossible to predict the future, but if we're, if we're sitting here at industry 2032, what's that conversation <laughs> really like old. about <laughs> yeah, how, how customer expectations have changed for business software? What, I mean, it's changed so much in the past 10 years. I'm just trying to think about what might that even look like in the future? I, the good thing is like, I, I don't think it's that hard to predict because I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're humans with human incentives and, you know, how we make decisions and our incentives have never, have not changed in the last, you know, many tens of, oh, whatever, thousands of years. And, uh, and it's not gonna change anytime soon, right? We make, and I think that was the breakthrough really that we had in terms of, in terms of trying to create a brand was just going from a world, you know, from a marketing standpoint of like, focusing on marketing activities to really focusing on like, how do people make decisions? What are their biases? Why do, how do those biases come into decision making? We all do it, every single one of them. You do it, I do it, everyone. We don't make decisions in this clear, um, unemotional way like we think we try to tell ourselves. That's kind of a revisionist version of how we make decisions. If you really study uh, human decision making, you can read lots of books on human decision making, cognitive biases, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, then you can really understand that humans haven't evolved and we make it for basic needs, right? Uh, basic wanting to be part of community or wanting to stand out or validation or whatever. And so like the way that we're gonna make decisions as customers is not gonna change. I think the thing that has changed or continue to change is that more people will be involved in those decision making within the company. And so like, which means it makes it even more important to understand how people make decisions because it's not gonna be centralized buying. Right. Uh, one thing that seems to be a trend that is maybe an unfortunate trend is that now our, some of our teams are, they have been growing very rapidly. Now some are shrinking, right? Today's economic climate, like we're, we're seeing companies in hiring freezes sometimes, sometimes even cutting teams. And so as product managers, we're forced to do more. The expectations don't change for us, but with less. 
and so I'm curious if you have advice on, on doing just that, on meeting customer expectations, which are increasing when maybe we don't have as many resources as we did a year ago. Well, I have lots of experience because I've only started companies in these times. So like I only end up starting companies for some reason, like recessionary times, so many times now. I think, um, I think at the end of the day, like, you know, whenever we start to build up and like we go through like an up cycle like we were in, like um, what happens is, you know, we start to distance ourselves from the problem, whether from the team, from the customer. And I think when we cut back a little bit, and it's not always the case, right? But like, uh, I think when we're forced to do more to le with less, that we're forced to spend more time with customers, with real problems, and really reduce some of the kind of exploration and some of the side things that we may be doing. So I think generally, like, we become more lean and efficient during those times. We learn a lot. It's painful. It's not easy. And, uh, and I think for the next subswing, we become prepared. So I think it's just a normal cycle in being a human, right? It's like nothing to do with being a product manager or being in tech or being or working. It's just like cycles in uh, being a human and living. And so yeah. we have to learn to adapt during these times and, and then save up for, for the next big upswing. You mentioned starting your businesses during, during those times, during whether it's a recession or just economic uncertainty. Were there any benefits to doing that? Like looking back, I mean, I imagine it was hard, but did it actually help you in some way? Uh, I, I'm curious yeah. about that. Uh, it definitely has helped in the past. Um, in terms of recruiting, you know, it was easier to recruit, yeah, unfortunately, right? So it was like easier to recruit and so easier to build. It also like made us think really hard about every dollar that we spent and every person that we brought on the team. And so we ended up with, I think, really great teams. Although it's easy to say that now, again, looking in hindsight, like during it, it, it like sucked and it was hard. And, you know, I started my first company post bubble meltdown into November of 2000. The market had crashed in, in um, March of 2000. I started the next company in 2007, eight crisis. Like every single company has been like in the worst time. But uh, through those times, those are the times that you can actually, if you can build a product and you can actually get customer traction in those hard times, then you're able to catch that upswing on the next, you know, run up that happens, which will happen. Yeah. And honing in on that a little bit, like spending time with customers, what should we be aiming for, right? Like some people might be like, well, I spend time with customers, I think, you know, but so what does that actually look like? And, and, and is it um, literally just sitting and having conversations? Like, what are the ways we should be with customers? There's so many different ways. And so I used to measure this when I was at HubSpot, when I ran product at HubSpot, I used to measure it because I would want to see each team, we had very small teams, each team, how long they were spending with customers every week. So I was looking at it on a weekly basis. And there were lots of ways that they could spend time with customers. Direct conversations with them. They could shadow sales calls. They could shadow support. We would like make those two things happen all the time. You know, they could be at conferences like this. They could be at customer con. We were just looking at different ways. The mat. We could. They could be emailing, converse, whatever. It just. We just had to see that they were in direct uh, communication somehow, or as part of that communication circle. And we were measured that every week to try to understand how each team was. And what we didn't want to see was that they read a report or that they got a piece of research, or like they got something that was synthesized or um, summarized by someone else. And so like we look at that every week. And so that's how I did it every week to make sure they were talking to customers. And every time that you know we would see a team drift away from talking to customers for too long, 
I knew that we were going in the wrong, and we were, every time it was the same thing, we were off chasing some other thing, whether it was uh, an excuse to re-platform something, or we were just going off while, you know, while chasing something that was not going to result in anything. And that's when the egos were coming in and they wanted to build what they wanted to build, who cares what the customer wanted. And they would, you know, we would convince ourselves that the customer wanted this. Like, you know, like, if we want to be able to like, you know, change the color on this pa- uh, of this link on this page, we have to obviously re-platform this entire system or else it can't work, right? And so you just just double click and poke holes in that and then yeah obviously we can do we don't have to do that and that's where our own biases can be yes. a big problem is there are there, is there advice that you have on how we can try to set those biases it's like that's hard sometimes that's i find myself in a conversation and i'm like i think they're saying this i'm like wait a minute they're not saying that mm-hmm. i wanted them to say that yeah i think the the thing that we've used as a tool is to to just talk about that from the very beginning of starting our company and even in the podcast and all this stuff that we do, we just talk about it a lot and so like that it's out there versus I think in most organizations, most teams, no one ever talks about egos and you know, like that we have to try to control our egos and the biases and how people make decisions and so like that makes it part of the language like and acceptable to talk about it and so I think that's the number way, number one way that we do it and the other way, which is the guardrail, is just to force customer communication uh, conversations to happen and if that happens all the time then uh, the greater chance that we can hear yeah well I, I know we're coming up on the end of our time kind of flew by if I'm being honest yeah. but I like to ask at the end uh, this question because we're you know we've just talked about a lot of different things a lot of things flowing in our mind and you're all gonna get the notes so we'll all remember everything <laughs> but if there is one big takeaway you hope people get from this conversation what would you want that takeaway to be well, I think there are two, so for me, so I'm going to cheat. I think, one, we have to start to think about, especially if you're in SaaS, you have to think and study the consumer product companies. I think the way that they run research and the way that they think about product innovation and extension, I think everyone can learn something from even though that most, all, most of us are in software. And, uh, and then, you know, never lose sight of the customer. So that's number one, and you'll see that in the way that, that those managers work. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, David, I really, really appreciate you being up here with me. And everybody can give it up for David Cancel. Well, that was fun for sure. And it's going to bring us to the end of our show here. If you do want to check out the full interview with David Cancel, um, you can on Industry On Demand. It's at od.industryconference.com. But next week, we're going to be back right here with a whole lot more to talk about. For Mike Belsito, I'm Michael Saka, and this is Rocketship.fm. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network, and if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. This episode was mixed and mastered by Court Deans. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.